Don't we, as fallen human beings, revert to the same fallen human wisdom that cannot give us answers? is the illustration here. He's the illustration of the one who takes security and pride in earthly fortifications. He is the illustration of the very one who says, we are so secure in our earthly security that we need not even seek any spiritual help. He is the epitome of the one who takes confidence. As the scriptures say to us, we don't take, take confidence in horses and chariots. We don't take confidence in Egypt. We take confidence in the Lord our God. He is our fortress. Belshazzar is the opposite of that. He's the polar opposite of the one who doesn't take confidence in earthly protections, instead seeks spiritual protections. So how often is it that we struggle with this same sort of thing, with with finding a false security in some sort of earthly wall or some sort of earthly gate or some sort of earthly provision? The Babylonians had five years of food. How often can we seek security in a 401k or some sort of savings or some job or some education that we've gotten? We are the same, only Belshazzar is this supreme example of one who's taking great pride in that. And so not only is he confident enough to do that, but he's also confident enough to bring out all these golden plates and cups. Now, these were all the items, the vessels that were taken from the temple 66 years ago. We've talked about that before. We'll talk about that again in just a moment. But these are all the the accoutrements, the vessels of the temple that were taken some 66 years ago by Nebuchadnezzar. Now, these were not just a few. It wasn't just a handful. This was quite a treasure. The scribe Ezra tells us that there were a total of 5,400 pieces of gold and silver taken from the temple. So this is quite a stockpile. So not only is Belshazzar confident enough to get inebriated in front of everybody, he's also confident enough to bring out the kingdom's treasures. Bring them all out. Let's enjoy our treasure. So he brings out all these vessels from the temple, the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple. So just a quick word there about Nebuchadnezzar, his father. Nebuchadnezzar was not his father by our means of using father. We talk about father. What we mean is biological father. That word wasn't used this way. In the, at least it wasn't used... In only that way. In the scriptures, when we see the word father, that can mean what we mean, biological father. But oftentimes, father in the scripture means something much broader, much closer to ancestor. Search in vain and you won't find anywhere in your Bible the word grandfather. Didn't, didn't exist. Great-grandfather, the concept didn't exist. That was all called father. We remember how, for example, Jesus is debating with the Pharisees, and uh, they say, well, well, we're of our father Abraham. And Jesus says, well, if you were of your father Abraham, you would believe my words. And Abraham's not their father, as we use that word. He's their ancestor. Okay, So Nebuchadnezzar was not Belshazzar's father. But, as we'll see a little bit later in the story, Nebuchadnezzar was Belshazzar's grandfather. And that'll become important a little bit later. So Nabonidus married... Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. And so Nebuchadnezzar was Belshazzar's grandfather on his mother's side. 
But now he brings out all these vessels, all these cups and trays and plates that have been stolen from the temple. And he adds to his sin of pride. He adds the sin of sacrilege. Now, sacrilege is not something that we talk about often today because sacrilege is the sin of taking something holy and vilifying it or using it for unholy purposes. And we know, at least I hope we know, that objects aren't holy in the sense of holiness of God. The holiness of objects aren't holy in that way. We don't consider, for example, this building to be a holy building. It's not any different from any other building. Now, it's set aside for a holy purpose. We use it for a holy purpose, but that's not the same thing as saying the building is something holy. So, in our modern contemporary culture, the, the, the sin of sacrilege is not something that we talk about nearly as often because we don't think of objects and things as being holy objects and holy things. But remember, this is the, the, these are the items of the temple. And so this is a little bit of a different scenario because the reason Belshazzar is doing this is because he is demonstrating, in his pride, he's demonstrating the power of his God over the God of the Israelites. You see, in ancient times, people didn't think of the power of their army in the same way that we think of the strength of militaries today. We think about the strength of military in terms of the number of of combatants, the weapons they have, the technology they have. And these days, the strength of an army wasn't thought of in terms of numbers of men or chariots or horses. It wasn't thought of in terms of the power of your God. And that's what it was all. It all boiled down to if your God is stronger than their God, then your army is stronger than their army. And that's why it was such a big deal 66 years ago when those who worshiped Marduk defeated those who worshiped Yahweh and raided the temple of Yahweh and took away as, as bounty the, the items that were used in the worship. And so that was a big deal when Nebuchadnezzar did it. But at least Nebuchadnezzar took those things and put them, maybe they're on display, maybe they're in a safe, maybe they're set aside. Belshazzar says, ah, this is how confident I am with those Persians at the gate. Bring out all the vessels from that Israelite God. We're going to drink out of those cups. We're going to serve drinks out of the, the trays that would show, that serves the showbread. We're going to serve wine on those trays. We're going to drink out of the cups that poured out the sacrifice onto the altar. So we're going to show just how powerful, because their God was nothing for us, neither will the Persian God be anything for us. So bring them out. So he brings out this, all, these, all these vessels, and they begin drinking and toasting, we're told. I'm sorry, verse 2. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple of Jerusalem to be brought that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king, king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So picture the scene. They are toasting dead gods made of wood and silver and rock, they are toasting them with the items from the temple of the living God. They are using those things 
that were devoted to the service of the true and living God in order to praise and toast and drink to gods who can't breathe, who can't see, who can't speak, who can't do anything. This is, once again, the illustration, the epitome of the one who takes the gifts and the possessions and the things of God and uses them to blaspheme God. I'm reminded here of the story that occurs in the prophet Hosea, which is the next book in our Bibles. Hosea chapter 2, remember the whole story about Hosea is God is illustrating this, this principle of spiritual adultery or idolatry that's committed by Israel. And he uses this metaphor of an unfaithful wife. And in that, he says this in Hosea chapter 2 and verse 8, and she, meaning Israel, she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. So God says, you're worshiping Baal, and you're giving oil sacrifices to Baal, and wine sacrifices to Baal, and and silver and gold. I gave you those things. I was the one who gave you those things, and you're using those things to blaspheme my name. Reminds us, of course, that whenever we blaspheme the living God, we do so with things He gave us. If our mouth speaks words against the living God, it's done from lips and breath and a voice that He gave us to speak that. If our feet take us down a sinful path, they do it because God gave us the feet and the legs to do it. We cannot sin against God without doing so by means of what He gave us to do. So they are uh, praising and extolling the God of Marduk and the moon God of Babylon and the God of Bel. They're praising all these false gods and they're doing, they're using God's holy vessels to do it. This is, this is the height of the parallel. Remember back in chapter one, we talked about this parallel between the boys and the vessels of the temple. Remember that? So there's this clear parallel that's set out in chapter 1, and the parallel is, A, these vessels that were taken from the temple are flawless, perfect, blemishless vessels that were taken and stolen, taken out of the land, and put into the service of the false gods. In the same way, the young Hebrew boys, who were told were blemishless, were also taken from the land and put into the service of the Babylonian God. So there's this parallel between the vessels of the temple and the Hebrew boys. Both of them flawless, blemishless, taken from their land, put into the service of the Hebrew, Hebrew God. So this is the epitome of that. This is the height of that. As the very vessels from the temple are toasting the false gods, the boys, are no longer boys, they're now old men in the land, have also been not only taken from their land, but also forced into the service of false gods now for six going on seven decades. So there's this parallel, this sort of climax is here between the vessels of the temple and those who were stolen from the land of the, uh, uh, the, land of the Hebrews. Nebuchadnezzar also, I told you, he, he is the illustration of so many spiritual principles. He's also the illustration for what Paul warns us about in 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul says, to not eat and drink condemnation or judgment upon yourself. Remember when he says that? He's talking in the terms of the supper. And he says, when you come to the Lord's Supper, don't do so with un, 
unrepented sin in your heart. If you come to the Lord's table not being worthy, meaning that you are not His child and, and you don't have, uh, repent, you haven't repented of, the, of your sin, you come in this unworthy way. And then if you take of the supper in that fashion, you are eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. Now, I know that, that Belshazzar is not partaking of the Lord's Supper here, but in what greater way is Belshazzar eating and drinking condemnation on himself now as to be one who blasphemes the living God and is eating and drinking out of the living God's cups and trays in order to do so. So he's this supreme illustration of this. But now, continuing on verse 5, immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared. Notice that. Immediately the fingers of this human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. Remember that room that I told you was discovered? The room that that is believed to be this room, the walls of the room are, you guessed it, plaster. So this huge, massive room, we're told that the fingers of the hand appear and immediately, and they wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. So in these days, of course, no electricity. The room wouldn't have been as well lit as this room is here. So it would, have been, it would have been a much more dimly lit room, but there would have been lampstands that would illuminate portions. And so the hand goes to the visible portion of the wall, the most visible portion of the wall, and writes there on the wall. Now we're not told if there's a writing instrument, if the hand is holding a quill pen or something of that nature. So I would assume it's not. I would assume that it's just the fingers and the hand without this human body attached. So we're thinking... The stone that was not cut by a human hand, also now the hand that doesn't have a body attached to it. So this disembodied hand appears and writes on the wall. Now we're not told what language it wrote in, whether it be Akkadian or Aramaic or perhaps Hebrew. But just imagine, okay, so this wall and this hand appears. I think it's probably, it's probably an oversized hand. I'm just speculating. But it's a big room. God obviously wants everybody to see this. So I, I imagine maybe it's a oversized hand, maybe a really large hand, and the finger writes on the wall. It, it would have written right to left. You know, so picture in your mind this this Semitic type of language written right to left, left Hebrew or Aramaic or something of that nature. And it writes on the wall. Notice Daniel doesn't tell us what it writes. So he leaves us in suspense as to what was written on the wall. And imagine, of course, the reaction. There was this party going on, loud noise, there's music, there's people laughing, people joking. I mean, it's a, this is a party of a couple thousand people. And then this hand appears, and now what do you hear? The music stops. Ladies scream. Men scream. And now everything is now different as this hand writes on the wall. So what, what an incredible thing just happened. Now, just to sort of take a little bit of a tangent, it says the finger wrote on the wall. I couldn't read that without being reminded of the other times that were told of the finger of God, particularly the finger of God writing. Think about, of course, the stone tablets of Moses, how we're told specifically that the finger of God wrote on those tablets. This is the second set of tablets. Or think about uh, Jesus in John 8. The woman caught in adult, in the act of adultery is brought and Jesus kneels down and writes in the dirt. That same finger writing on the dirt, writing on Moses' tablets, writing on the wall. The psalmist tells us that that same finger wrote 
in the heavens because the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare the work of His fingers. None of that's really directly related to what we're being told here. I just, when I come across stuff like that, I appreciate when, when, when others show me sort of the connections that Scripture makes. And I find it interesting and, and helpful when I see sort of the unified picture of Scripture, that there is a finger. God, God doesn't have a literal finger, but there is a finger of God that has written everything from His law to His glory in the heavens, to the condemnation of the men who brought the woman caught in adultery, to now the condemnation of the prideful king of the kingdom of evil. Because remember, that's what Babylon is. Babylon is the kingdom of evil. So it writes on the, the wall here, this fingers of the human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed. And his thoughts alarmed him. Think of how many times we've been told that somebody's thoughts alarmed them. Nebuchadnezzar's thoughts alarmed him in chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar's thoughts alarmed him again in chapter 4. Daniel's thoughts alarmed him when he was given the interpretation of the dream in chapter 4. Now, Belshazzar's thoughts alarm him as he sees, obviously, this hand writing on the wall. Which, by the way, that's where we get the expression. If you've ever wondered, read the writing on the wall. That's, that's where this expression came from. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. So the king's watching and he sees the hand moving and writing. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. Now that phrase translated, his, his limbs gave way. That is an extraordinarily polite and gracious translation. The translators are being very kind to Belshazzar because that phrase literally, if we were to translate it literally, means the joints of his loins loosened. He soiled himself. So now there's this picture in our mind of the king of evil. Belshazzar, by the way, is 36. Daniel, when he comes in the room, is going to be 80. So here's this 36-year-old man leading this drunken party. He's the king of the kingdom of evil, the king of the most powerful kingdom on earth. And the story is told us for the purpose of illustrating how God humbles the proud. And now this king of the most powerful kingdom on earth is in this drunken stupor, pale as a sheet, and he soiled his robes. That's a picture of the king of the kingdom of evil as they stand before the living God, or at least the manifestation of the living God. So this is a fantastic picture that Daniel is sharing with us here. As his color, now as white as a sheet, his limbs gave way, his knees knocked together. He's got spaghetti legs. I mean, he needs to sit down because he might just fall down because he, he's no longer stable on his feet. And we can understand. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? This hand shows up and writes on, the, on your wall, we would probably not react altogether different than Belshazzar did. So now the, verse 7, the king called loudly 
to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. So he shouts, bring in the magicians. Bring in the Chaldeans. Bring in the astrologers. So he calls them in. Remember, the music stopped. All the talking has stopped. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler of the kingdom. Now, what's up with the third ruler? Why not second ruler? Because remember, yeah, Belshazzar is the co-regent. So third ruler is the best that he could do. So he offers, what it, bring him in. Give him whatever. You will be purple robe. Now, purple robe would have signified royalty now. Chain, gold chain would have signified wealth. So whatever you want, whatever you want. I'll give you, up to, like Herod says, up to half my kingdom. And so here he once again calls in the beating. How many times is this now? Okay, chapter 2. Well, we start in chapter 1 when Nebuchadnezzar recognized that Daniel and Hananiah, Mishai, and Azariah were ten times wiser than any of their Chaldean magicians. So that's where we start. But then chapter 2, same thing. Nebuchadnezzar's first dream calls in everybody else. Nobody else can interpret it. All right, kill them all then. Oh, wait a minute. There's this guy, Daniel. Chapter 4, second dream, even more disturbing. Once again, Nebuchadnezzar asks everybody except Daniel. Now, this is the third manifestation, the the third supernatural appearance, and once again, Daniel is not called. Belshazzar here is the, once again, the illustration of what we might call the spirit of Rehoboam. Remember, Remember Rehoboam? Remember that guy? He was Solomon's son. And Solomon died, Rehoboam takes the throne, and then the first few days he's on the throne, these people come and they say, listen, Rehoboam, Solomon was really hard. He was he enslaved us, and he was really demanding. Listen, your people will love you, and they will serve you for the rest of their life. Just ease up on them a little bit. And Solomon said, or I mean, Rehoboam said, "All right, I'll think about it. Go away and come back in a few days." So then he consults the older, wiser counselors of the land, and they say, "Yes, that's wise counsel. If you ease up on them, if you ease their burden, they will serve you diligently their whole life." But then he calls in his college buddies, his fraternity buddies, and he says, well, you know, what do you say to this? And they say, no, you do the opposite. You tighten, they've got too much time on their hands. You tighten up on them and they, you need to be hard, hard with these people. So he follows their advice. And then within days, the kingdom had been split in two. So along those same lines, here is Belshazzar calls in all his fraternity buddies, all his Chaldeans, all his magicians and everything, never even thinks about this man Daniel. He calls them in and asks them. Once again, he asks everyone but the one who will have access, of course, to the truth. Belshazzar here is, again, this illustration of the fool who returns again and again and again to the same hopeless, pointless Worldly methods. Isn't that how our world goes? Don't we as fallen human beings, don't we as a fallen society, don't we just over and over and over and over again revert to the same fallen human wisdom that cannot give us answers? Once again, we just always revert back. I read just a a few weeks ago that there are still, even in this day in which there's hardly any 
newspapers being printed, there are still today 3,000 daily horoscope columns being printed. We still have, we've not learned yet that that's just foolishness. We still resort to the same human wisdom. Likewise in your life too. Do you have something in your life that you just, like a dog to vomit, you just go back to? You prayed for victory over that. You thought you had some victory, but now you just go back and back and back. That is the lifelong battle with sin. God will give us lasting and permanent victory over some sin, but in His wisdom, He will allow some sin to be like the dog's vomit for us that we just go back to and back to. We've learned it's poison. We've learned it's destructive. We don't want it, we think, but we just go back to it and back to it and back to it. In His wisdom, God will allow some of that to remain. Why? Well, maybe a big reason is to keep us, as the story is saying, humble. To keep us, from, as Paul says, from becoming proud. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church. We invite you to visit our website where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.disciplesfellowshipnc.com or connect with our Facebook page at Facebook slash Disciples Fellowship NC. Truth That Transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ through the teaching of His sanctifying and disciple-making Word.